Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at uh, verses 7 through 11. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. This is our prayer teaching series. We're going to wrap it up next weekend. We're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer, kind of dissect that along with uh, some water baptisms. We'll do our water baptism celebration that weekend, and uh, we're excited about that. Uh, so this is our prayer series, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Rules for Prayer is the title of this weekend's message. So let me start off by uh, kind of making some statements you can follow there on your sermon notes. This is an important statement. Our concept of God determines uh, the quality of our relationship with God. Think about that just for a minute. So, so your concept, how you see God, determines your the quality of your relationship with God. So, so just now as you worship God through song, if your worship was kind of flat, it's because your, your concept of God is pretty flat. See, our, our worship rises or falls with our concept of God. And so it's really important to have an accurate concept of God based on God's word. So as you can see, our concept of God not only determines how we will relate to him. So if you're kind of lacking in zeal and spiritual fervor, if you're being overcome by trials or overtaken by temptations, it's because you have a real small view of God. And so it's really important you have this accurate view of God based on God's word. Our concept of God not only determines how we will relate to him, but also what we reveal about him to others. And so as we talk about the rules for prayer, these rules for prayer don't earn or merit God's attention. Christ's indispensable and costly love on the cross has done that once and for all. Praise God for that. And so th that's not what this is about. In fact, what they do is that they reveal whether you are praying to the real God of the Bible or a figment of your imagination. Now, I come across a lot of people that have some crazy ideas about God, and it's evident in their life because of their concept of God. It determines the quality of your relationship with God and then what you convey to others about God. And, uh, and so, and sometimes I think people are just praying to kind of a figment of their imagination because it's not consistent with the God of the Bible. And also, these characteristics, um, these rules for prayer are the characteristics of a rich and robust prayer life. So, so I guess what we're doing here this morning is there's, there's two questions we're gonna answer. The first one is, um, how do you know that you're praying to the real God of the Bible rather than a figment of your imagination? We're gonna look at some characteristics here. And also we're gonna answer the question is what are the characteristics of a rich and robust prayer life? What does that look like? And you can see that there's five of these. When you look at your notes, joyful fear, spiritual insufficiency or spiritual humility, number three, confident hope, number four, restful trust, and then number five, grace. So we'll look at all of those. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's begin with a word of prayer before we take a look at this text and unpack these notes. So God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We've come to worship you, to encounter you. Father God, we are forever grateful for the indispensable and costly love of Christ on the cross that has forever reconciled us to you by grace. Give us a sense of of the seriousness and magnitude of what prayer is, a personal audience in conversation with you, the almighty God of the universe. May we be moved by your majesty and Father's heart for us. So 
to the degree that we are freed from earthly cares and affections. Show us wonderful things from your word and produce in us these characteristics of a rich, robust prayer life. Help us to realize more and more that no matter how great our earthly circumstances become, they can never bring us the lasting peace, happiness, and consolation that are found in you. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Now, anytime you read a text, you want to know the context. The context is, anybody know where this text is found? It's, it's in a real popular sermon. And what is that sermon? Anybody want to yell it out to me? Sermon on the Mount, yeah. The most, most popular, most significant things that Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount. Pretty hard words, too. In fact, what you do is you walk through them. You can't live this. There's no way you can live this, and then it just makes you more dependent upon him and, and upon Christ to, to live that through you, for you. It's by God's grace. And in chapter 7, so Sermon on the Mount is found in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, and we're taking a chunk of it here. And in chapter 7, uh, the context is that he, in verses 1 and 2, he gives us the interpersonal traits of Christians. You guys familiar with that? Judge not, lest you be judged. That's King James Version. But basically, he's just saying, hey, Christians, you're supposed to be discerning and not judgmental. There's a difference between the two. We won't get into it. And so he's talking about interpersonal traits. You're going to be discerning but not judgmental. And then verses 3 through 6, it gives us the heart that produces those traits, a humble confidence. And it says uh, that you should be more conscientious of the log in your own eye versus the speck in everybody else's eye. Does that make sense? So, when you, so if you're going to be more discerning and less judgmental, you're going to be more aware of your own issues as opposed to everybody else's issues. And so he gives us interpersonal traits of Christians, and then he gives us the heart that produces those traits, humble confidence. And then in verses 7 through 11, which is our text, where that heart comes from, and it comes from our understanding of the Father heart of God for me and you. <laughs> I love it. And, and of course, verse 12 gives us the golden rule, and that kind of summarizes all that he just said there. So you're going to do unto others as you would have them do unto you because your heart has been ravished by the beauty and the glory of, of, of the Father heart of God and what he's done for you through Jesus Christ. So let me begin reading um, Matthew 7. Starting at verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Does that sound familiar? I mean, didn't we do a, a text last weekend that talked about that? How many were here last weekend that uh, you guys remember the text? It was found in actually Luke 11. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of a chunk out of Luke 11, but we're just looking at this. I thought it would really be good for us to kind of dive into this. So ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Literally in the Greek, it's ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Make this a way of life. Oh, I love this because what he's telling us is that you don't have to overcome God's reluctance in prayer, you're just going to lay hold of his willingness. He's saying, do you have any idea how much your father loves you? Ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, knock, keep on knocking. That's what he's saying here. In verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it's going to be open. I like that. That's a great invitation. This is Jesus speaking. And in verse 9, he says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Any parent here this morning when your kids ask for bread, you know, toast, little jam on it? You give them a stone, put jam on the stone. Here, kid, chew on this. No, you wouldn't do that. That's crazy. 
Isn't that wild? Of course you wouldn't do that. That's what he's saying. I mean, this is a little Hebrew humor. I know you guys aren't getting it. But, uh, but that's exactly what it is. He said, you wouldn't do that. And then he goes on. Or if he asks for fish, <laughs> here's a serpent, a snake. You're not going to do that. He's, he's saying the obvious here. And then he goes this. If you then who are evil, that's not nice. You know y'all are evil. That's what he's saying. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to followers. He said, though you are evil, and he's, he's validating the fact that we all know, the Bible makes it very clear, sinful depravity is that we're sin, sinners by nature and by choice. So it's just a matter of fact. So that should just be a matter of fact for us too. We'll talk about that in a little bit as we walk through this. So if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask them? Exclamation mark. Yes, this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, okay, so let's walk through this. These are the characteristics of a rich, robust prayer life. This is how you know if you're interacting with the real God of the Bible versus a figment of your imagination. Here's the first one, joyful fear. Verse 11, notice he says... Father who is in heaven. Now, so naturally when Jesus, when the disciples asked Jesus uh, how to pray, he says, pray like this, that had to have blown, blown their mind. Father, Daddy? We talked about it last week. And, um, and maybe that doesn't conjure up joy within you, and it could be because maybe you had an absentee father or an abusive father or a neglectful father. If when I say daddy or father and it creates this cringe moment, you need to have that redefined for you. And, uh, and that, that may be what's that hindrance in your relationship with God. So it should create joy. And then also father who is in heaven should create fear. What is fear? Letter A on your notes under Roman numeral one. It is not a fear of punishment. First John 4.18 makes that clear. Or condemnation. Romans 8.1 makes that clear, but a fear that actually increases with our understanding of the gospel. So this is a fear that increases with an understanding of the gospel. Gospel, we are recipients of undeserved and unshakable grace. Psalm 134 says this, with you, God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isn't that interesting? So, the, so it's almost the idea here is that the more you understand how much he forgives you, the more you're going to fear him. Next point in your notes, letter B, it is an intense concern not to grieve or dishonor the one who is so glorious and who has done and is doing so much for us. So it's a concern not to grieve or dishonor our God. It tells us in Proverbs 9, 10, all those are different addresses to different places in the Bible that give a greater understanding of what we're talking about here. Proverbs 9, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Anybody know? The beginning of wisdom. So it's saying, you're not even on the field. This is entry level. Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. It is competency in life's realities. He said, man, you're not even on first base if you don't understand the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
And then it also says knowledge or intimacy of the Holy One, that is God, is understanding. You, begin to make, you can begin to make sense of life. What is this life all about? You get a sense of the purpose, purpose of life. And so we could say that so, so, it's, so this fear, this idea of fear that the Bible gives us is a life-altering, joyful, there's the joy, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins us for anything else. That's the idea here. Now, I did this a number of years ago. How many remember the old... Uh, uh, the old days when we were in the nightclub. Remember the nightclub? It was called Sensations. <laughs> How many remember that day? Show of hands. Okay, there's still, still a lot of folks around that from the Sensation days. And what was fascinating about that is that there were people that used to go to that nightclub, dance and drink, and, and some of them even met there, and then uh, they came and got saved in the new place because we turned that old nightclub into a church, so it was pretty fascinating. So while we were there, I told this story, maybe you remember this story, uh, about Nancy and I going to Zitejas, a little restaurant there in uh, Paradise Valley, and while we were sitting in that restaurant, lo and behold, guess who came in and sat right next to us? Luis Gonzalez. How many know who Luis Gonzalez is? Okay, now Luis Gonzalez is uh, the guy from the Diamondbacks, who back in 2001, how many remember 2001, when Luis Gonzalez got up to bat in the seventh game of the World Series against the New York Yankees, and he hit that little blooper right into left field, and they won the World Series against the New York Yankees. Woohoo! You guys remember that? How many remember that? Oh, yeah, that, that's a fun story. And so, lo and behold, I'm sitting right next to Luis Gonzalez. And so he sees my shirt. I've got this DB on. He goes, hey, what's that about? I said, that's a church. I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, that's cool. He says, I do a lot of community service, and so I'd love to come over sometime. I said, hey, how about this next weekend? He goes, I'd love to. <laughs> and so I told the congregation this, and I said, and guess who's here? Luis Gonzalez. Let's give him a round of applause. Come on in, Luis Gonzalez. And as I did that, everybody stood up, started looking at the door, and went, Now, I mean, they just blew the roof off the place, only to find out that he wasn't actually there. <laughs> I'm sorry, I lied. But then I said this, but someone else is here much more important than Luis Gonzalez, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And they went through the ceiling. They better had after I said that. Huh? It's like, I set him up. I set him up. And I'm almost sure that they wanted to vote me off the island right then. I mean, I, I have security around me right, you know, even to this day. I think some people are still upset. From, I mean, that, for years after that, they, they reminded me. Remember Luis Gonzalez? Uh, yeah, I think I do. Remember what you did to us? Oh, no, uh, no, I didn't. I don't know. Don't, don't remember. Please forgive me. So it was kind of, it was, it was an interesting uh, thing. But the point was... It's this, imagine you are suddenly introduced to some person you have always admired enormously, perhaps someone that you have even hero-worshipped. Imagine that. What's going to happen with you? You're going to be maybe trembling and, and sweating. <sighs> Why? You're not afraid of being hurt or punished. You're generally, genuinely afraid of doing something stupid or saying something inappropriate. You're in awe, and therefore you don't want to mess up. 
even more so, even more so, the very fact that we have access to God's attention and presence should concentrate our thoughts. God is here. God is here this morning. He's here to meet with us. That should concentrate our, our thoughts. God is here and elevate our hearts, awe and wonder, joyful fear. See, that's the normal response of people who are encountering the God of the Bible. And then there's spiritual insufficiency or humility. And this spiritual insufficiency drives verse, verse seven is ask, seek, and knock. So there's the, that becomes a way of life. Oh, you want him more than anything. You ask, seek, and knock. By the way, if your prayer life is feeble, passive, apathetic, it's because you're not in touch with how desperate you really are because, and the reason why you're not in touch with how desperate you really are It's because you still believe that something in creation can give you the lasting peace, happiness, and consolation that only can be found in Jesus Christ. See, as long as you continue to believe that, prayer is not going to be that important. But when you begin to realize, oh my goodness, he's the source of lasting peace and happiness and consolation You're going to ask, seek, and knock. You're going to keep coming to him. It's going to be a way of life. And you guys know this, that we talked about it last weekend, is that suffering has a way of blowing our cover, kind of letting us know that uh, of what is obvious. We do need him. We're desperate for him. And suffering has a way of doing that, just reminding us of something that's always been true. We're desperate for him. But it also does this. It kind of shows us our pseudo Saviors, our counterfeit gods. What we've been looking to in replacement of, of him. And oftentimes that's how you define suffering. It's because of something that's really, really, really important to you, more important than God, that's being threatened, blocked, or lost. And, and that's why you have such an, such an extreme emotional response to that. Letter A on your notes. Prayer brings you into God's presence where our shortcomings are exposed And self-justification, blame-shifting, self-pity, and spiritual pride can be abandoned. I find it interesting in verse 11, as I stated earlier, if you then who are evil, Jesus is just saying that as a matter of fact. Oh yeah, if you, you disciples, those of you that are following me, you're evil. Oh, by the way, did I tell you? You're evil. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I mean, he's just saying it like it's, that's a matter of fact. I think there's something to that as he's, as, he's, as he's sharing that, and I think it's important. First John 1, 7 through 9, it's, it's, I love John, the Gospel of John. He calls himself the beloved. Obviously, he was a part of the 12, but also part of this three, Peter, James, and John, a very close, intimate relationship with Jesus. And when he writes in the smaller letters towards the end of the Bible, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he says something there. He goes, uh, as he starts that book, 1 John, he says, that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched, oh my goodness, we were there. We had fellowship with God in the flesh. And oh, by the way, I'm telling you this because I want you to have the same kind of relationship because I want your joy to be complete. And then he goes on, and as you work through that, and I've got it written here, 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
And then he adds this. What is this about? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why would he have to add that? And then he goes on, he says, if we say we have no sin, we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's something going on here. So as we are getting closer to him, there's some kind of exposing, yeah, yeah, there's this, uh, this our shortcomings are exposed as we get closer to the light, and so therefore, he says, that's why if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourselves. Have, have you ever been in a small group before where everybody's going around in the group and they're sharing their, their doubts and feelings and fears and struggles, and then you come across somebody in there that they almost come off like they're holier than everybody else in there, and I've never had those kind of problems, and I can't really relate to you. We had that in a... In a couples group one time, and all the couples were going around and sharing all the different things that they were experiencing and the difficulties, and then this couple that had been married for 24 years said, well, we've, we really can't relate to any of that. We've never had any problems. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly it. That's what, that's what immediately, I, I was thinking, you're lying. I thought everybody in that group was going to dogpile them right in the middle of the room. And I thought they were going to say, you might not have ever had a problem, you got a problem now because we're going to beat you up. We're going to work you over because you guys are lying. We're going to beat that lying out of you. The Bible says that if you think you're without sin, you're deceiving yourself. Y'all know this, you're pretty evil. That's what he says. Hey, oh yeah, by the way, you're evil, though you are evil. Just a matter of fact. So there should be this openness and honesty about us. Yeah, I say things and do things I probably shouldn't. I don't want to. I love the Lord. He's working in me. He's transforming my life. And I love him for that. But I'm willing to admit, that's why you can admit your shortcomings. You're able to get rid of self-justification, blame-shifting, self-pity, and spiritual pride. You can abandon that because, because that's, that's part of life. We're working through that. We can acknowledge that. Until we fully acknowledge the chaos within us, that the Bible calls sin, we live in what is called un, unreality. We, we, generally, we generally have too small of a view of, of sin and also too small of a view of God's grace to free us from sin. So, so cheer up. Cheer up because you're more flawed than you think and the world is more fallen than most want to admit. But God's grace is bigger than you could ever dream. Next point in your notes, letter B. We should come to God knowing our only hope is in his grace and therefore be honest about our doubts, fears, and emptiness. So, so you've got to understand faith. Faith is not the absence of doubts, fears, and emptiness or the absence of sin. It's taking your sins, your doubts, your fears, and emptiness to, to God. That's faith. That's faith. It's being willing to admit and say, hey, yeah, I'm, I didn't have a very good week this week. My marriage isn't going so well. My job, I can't stand it. All these things are falling apart, and you're willing to admit that. You have people who can surround you and love you and support you and not come off with some sort of holier-than-thou, self-righteous attitude, but they're right there with you. That's, that's the idea. See, and you've heard this before, the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. You've heard that. The church should be the safest place on earth to confess and be honest about our doubts, fears, and emptiness. 
We should come to God with the disposition of a beggar. By the way, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he say, blessed are the poor in spirit, spiritual poverty? Yes, that's you and I. We're desperate for him. The more in touch you are of your, of your spiritual poverty, the more you're going to be desperate, and the more desperate you are, the more you're going to seek, you're going to ask, seek, and knock. It's going to be a way of life. It's going to be more and more a part of your life. See, this is about dropping all pretenses. Counselors will tell you that the only character flaws that can really destroy you are the ones you won't admit. I, I gave you some verses there, Jeremiah 29, 13, and 14. They're in exile. He says, seek me with all of your heart. When you do, you're going you're gonna to find me. What? Wait a minute. I thought you were omnipresent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am. And oh, by the way, I also said that I will never leave you and forsake you. So what is this finding him? This is what the finding is, and, and this is what drives the seeking, is that, yeah, we know that. We know that intellectually, but we don't know it experientially. We know that he will never leave us or forsake us. We know that he's omnipresent. The Bible tells us that. But we don't have the experience of that on our heart. So we, we ask, we seek, we knock. Oh, God, like the psalmist says in Psalm 42, where it says, the deer pants for the streams of water, how my soul pants for you, oh God. See, that, that verse wasn't meant to be put on a nice little coffee mug and you look at it and go, oh, that's so sweet. That deer is dying. That deer is, is devastated and that's what it's talking about. Oh, I am desperate for you, God. See, that, that's normal Christianity. Oh, I need you, I long for you. That's, that's healthy Christianity, that's... That's what we're talking about here, spiritual insufficiency, humility. It drives this asking and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. God, I need you. I trust in you. I'm broken. I need you to heal me. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I was studying this idea of of what does it mean to seek God because it's throughout the Scripture. Seek God. Seek God. In fact, Hebrews 11.6, it says that without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So it's more than just kind of having this general idea of God. It's actually seeking God, making him the passion of your life. Uh, write this down on your notes. It's Psalm 105.4. It gives us a little bit of a definition here of what that means. Psalm 105.4. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. It's seeking his presence continually. It's where his presence, not just intellectually, but experientially, is deep within your heart where it dominates your solitude. The more he dominates your solitude, the more peace, happiness, and consolation you'll experience. By the way, you know this, I've told you this many times before, that what you daydream about in your spare time reveals the true God of your heart. What you daydream about in your spare time, it's pretty frightening. When I begin to really explore that, oh, but Pastor Ray, I have no spare time. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, I know some of you are saying, oh, I don't have any spare time. I don't have to worry about that. No, no, no. That tells me that there is something dominating your, your solitude. That is dominating your solitude. It's probably workaholism. It's distractions. It's all these things that you're allowing yourself to be distracted with. What it's saying is that when, you, when the Bible says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's saying, let him dominate your solitude. What you daydream about in your spare time, oh, my goodness, you daydream about him. You have this deep relationship with him because you know that only he can satisfy the longing 
the longing of your soul. You look to him, you trust in him, you walk with him, you have this continual conversation with him. It, it is this, this idea of focusing on him. The more he dominates your solitude, the more peace, happiness, and consolation you'll have. And the more you're in touch with your spiritual insufficiency, insufficiency, that humility, it drives you to him. And this is what I discovered. It is a habitual conscious focusing of your mind's attention and heart's affection on God. And then what you find out is that when you find yourself restless, as we all do, we hear him speak to us and he says, come unto me, all ye that are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. Why are you so stressed out? Why are you so anxious? Come to me and receive, and let me bring calmness to your life and to your heart. And what you'll find is that there is no sin that you have committed or has been committed against you that is a match for his grace. Yeah, you're more sinful than you ever dare to think, but you're more loved than you ever dare to dream, and it drives your heart close to his heart. And in fact, if you ever look at any person or situation as hopeless, then you don't understand God's amazing grace. His grace is amazing, and that's, it drives us to this idea of this confident hope. Number three on your notes, confident hope so you got joyful fear, spiritual insufficiency, and confident hope. Verse 8, for everyone who asks receives. Letter A on your notes under Roman numeral 3, ask boldly with confident hope that your prayer will be answered. Matthew 26, 39, this is uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the first half of his prayer where he says, let this cup pass from me. Boldly asking the Father, letter B on your notes, if God's will is always right and submission to it is so important, why pray for anything with fervor and confidence? Why? You've heard me say this before, you know, God's going to give to you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knew. So if he's going to do that, then why even ask? Has anybody ever wondered that? Why, if he's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, why even ask anybody? Like, just me? Okay, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. It's like, so here's three reasons why, why ask, why interact with him. Number one, God invites us to do so because he is good and promises to answer prayers. James 5.16, this is a great, great verse. The prayer of a righteous person, not righteousness because we got it all together, righteous because we put our faith in Jesus. The prayer of a righteous person is, is what? Powerful and effective. Number two reason, God often waits to give a blessing he often waits to give a blessing until you have prayed for it. James 4.2, you have not because what? Anybody? Because you asked not. So you mean to tell me that there's times I've done without because I failed to ask? Yeah, exactly. You have not because you asked not. And many times he waits to give to us until we ask. Why, Why is that? Because good things that we do not ask for will usually be interpreted by our hearts as the fruit of our own wisdom and diligence. Hey, look at me, look how great I am. Wait a minute, God gave you that. Well, I didn't ask him. <laughs> Gifts from God that are not acknowledged as such are deadly to the soul because they increase the illusion of self-sufficiency that leads to overconfidence and sets us up for failure. 
So that's why he wants us to ask. He wants us to ask. When you look at this church, if you you get to know me and you look at this church, you're going to go, how in the world did this church ever grow to the size that it grew to and and the impact that it has? Well, it ain't because of me. You know that. It wasn't because of my brilliance or the elders' brilliance. You know, a horse is prepared for battle, but victory is in the hands of the Lord. Certainly, we want to do diligence and do the things that we need to do. Proverbs 21, 31 makes that pretty clear. But victory is in the hands of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. That's the story of my life. I've seen that over and over again where God has allowed me to get my back up against the wall. I cry out to him and he comes in and rescues and takes care of me and loves me. And so we get the blessing. He gets the glory. I love that arrangement. It's a wonderful arrangement. And then number three, God will give to us what is best for us in the long run and and prayer will enable us to rest in his will. Romans 8, 28. Maybe you've memorized that. It's a great verse. So your interaction with him is better by far than any gift you would ever receive from him. Oh, did you hear that? Get that one. Because I talk to people all the time. Well, I prayed and prayed and I didn't get what I wanted, so I'm out of here. What? What are you thinking? You missed the most important thing of the Christian life. It's God. Not to get from him, but to be with him. And it's in the being with him, you begin to realize whether he gives you all the stuff you want or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you have him. And so prayer helps you to come to that understanding. Psalm 16:8. you can live out that. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And then begin to live in Romans 16, 11. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. All in intimacy with God is our greatest treasure and pleasure. Your highest treasure is not in gifts from God, but being with God. That's the best thing about the Christian life. We have his presence. We have his presence. That is amazing. And, uh, and that should create this number four, restful trust. Verse 11, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, how much more will your Father who is in heaven, um, I have now eight grandkids. Not as many as McGuire's. They have hundreds of grandkids. <laughs> I think it's awesome. And I'll tell you what, so we have eight grandkids, six boys, move out of the way, boys, because the last two were girls, Uh, little Gretchen and Juliet. And I'll tell you what, those kids, and, and every parent and grandparent out there, as a grandparent, I would give my life for those kids. And, um, of course, we fill them up with candy and send them home. Uh, (laughs) We like that too. But I mean, I would give my life for those kids. But you know what's interesting is when I was on the fire department, we have a number of people that are, you know, we've got police officers here and we've got uh, fire department people. And there's something about going on a call with a child. I'll never forget when I went on a call with a little six-year-old that had drowned. I cried and I didn't even know him and I didn't even know his parents and it ripped my heart out. It was devastating. And if that had that kind of an impact on me, this is what he's saying. This is what he's saying. How much more will your Father who is in heaven, even though you are evil, how much more? 
There has never been a parent or grandparent on earth who wants to answer their child's request and wants joy for their child as much as your heavenly Father wants for you. If you only, if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, if you only, if you could only get to know the Father heart of God for you, you would rest in Him. You would rest in Him completely. You would enjoy Him deeply. You would share Him contagiously. Nothing would keep you from Him. This is why this whole series of of all in intimacy with God. See, inordinate or excessive anxiety, anger, depression is a daily statement to God saying, I don't think you have my best interests in mind. I understand there's physiological things. You need to get sleep and rest and, and eating and diet and all these things like that and maybe some medicine to help the chemistry imbalances, but ultimately, foundationally, inordinate anxiety, anger, depression is a daily statement to God saying, I don't think you have my best interest in mind. Letter A on your notes. Trust God, trust God. Even when things are not going as we wish, as we wish them to go, leaving all your needs and desires in his hands. Matthew 26, 39, the second part of Jesus' prayer there in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. God's fatherly love means absolute security. He will neither neglect or abuse. Yeah, but it feels like neglect. It feels like it isn't. It isn't. You, you have too small of a view of God. Your concept of God is distorting the quality of your relationship with Him. You're desperate to see how big and wonderful and great He is. You need to go back to the Scriptures and, and bathe in the Word of God so that it begins to correct that. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding in all of your ways. Acknowledge Him, and He will direct He will direct your paths. Letter B, one of the purposes of prayer is to trust in God's wisdom, not in our own. It is to say, here's what I need, but you know best. That transaction brings a comfort and rest that nothing else can bring. God, it's in your hands. I trust you with this. I don't understand it, but I trust you in this. Psalm uh, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, it says... uh, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name, name speaks of character, those who know his name will trust in him. It's almost like he's saying, get to know him, your trust will soar. How many of you ever found this to be true, that there are certain people in your life that the more you got to know them, the less you trusted them? Show of hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not the same with God. Get to know him, spend time with him. Get into his word, worship him. Let him dominate your solitude. Oh, my goodness, your trust in him will soar. He is a, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name will trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. Oh, there's that again. Seek him, seek him with all of your heart. Yes, let him dominate your solitude. 
this magnificent obsession with a heavenly treasure beside which everything else in life is of, of no value. That's what it's talking about there. And this takes us to number five, grace. It's all about grace. It's all by God's grace. It's all by his grace. Rules against rules. Verse 11, give good things to those who ask him. Nothing we do can qualify us for access to God. Only grace, only grace can do that based not on our performance but on the saving work of Christ. I gave you a bunch of grace verses there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. So, so yell it out to me, can you, can you earn, can you earn God's favor? Earn God's favor? No, 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 no. So unearned favor is grace. Unearned, so if you can't earn it, you can't unearn it. You can't unearn it. It's, it's yours. It's yours by you putting your faith in Jesus. Yeah, but you don't know how, what kind of week I had. It doesn't matter. You can't unearn it. Run into his arms. Come to him. Let him transform your life. Whatever your struggle is, come and run to him. That's the idea. And what you'll find is his empowering presence in your life. That's what grace means, his empowering presence working in your life. Letter B, only when we see we cannot keep the rules. Oh, I love this. This is the, the essence of the Christian life. So if you've kind of started fading off, come back, come back, come back. Here we go. This is the Christian life. Only when we see we cannot keep the rules and need God's grace can we become people who begin to keep the rules. Oh, my goodness. The more you are ravished by the Father heart of God's grace, the more you will experience joyful fear, spiritual humility, confident hope, restful trust. See, prayer both requires these rules that we just looked at here and produces these rules by God's grace. The Christian life is not a morally restrained will. It's a supernaturally transformed heart. How do I know my heart's being transformed? This is what this means when our hearts are transformed. It is when what you most ought to do and what you most want to do are the same thing. Listen to what uh, John Newton says. Um, he's the guy that wrote the song Amazing Grace. Listen to what he said. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Isn't that crazy? Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. No more. When you see Jesus lose his beauty on the cross for you and I to make us beautiful, that makes him amazingly beautiful, and that transforms our hearts and our pleasure and our duty become one. We want to follow him, we want to serve him, we want to live our lives for him, and when we don't, we get back up and we keep coming back to him because he loves us. And it's all by his amazing grace. Have you given your heart to Jesus? Do you know him? While we pray, I would encourage you, man, Make him the Lord of your life. Give your life to him. Acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins and confess him as Savior. If you do that for the first time this weekend, we'd love to dunk you in the water next weekend. I mean, we'll, we'll dunk you. We promise we won't hold you under for long. 
okay? But we'd love to be able to baptize you. We're going to have a baptism service next weekend. We're going to finish up this series, and we're going to head into a brand new series after this. If you're a guest, I'd love the privilege to meet you and buy you a drink from our coffee bar right up here in the front. And if you need prayer for any particular reason, there'll be uh, leaders, pastors up here to pray with you this morning. Don't forget baptism class right over here to my left, to your right. Let's pray. Father God, what an amazing... uh, what amazing insight that you've given us through your word. We, we come to you trusting in Christ for all of the acceptance, security, and significance we'll ever need, not relying on our own credibility or record, but on the saving work of Jesus and our status through Christ as your beloved children. God, so many of us struggle getting that deep within our heart. Lord, make that a reality deep within our heart. Thank you, Father, for being fully committed to our well-being as your children. And God, as that goes deeper within our heart, may that produce in us more, more and more joyful fear, spiritual humility, confident hope, and restful trust in our interaction with you for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you guys. Love you a lot. Have a great weekend.